So it's no secret that a lot has been stolen from black people. Our land, our bodies, our native tongues. But even so, we've always created beauty from the bleakest conditions. And to survive in America, we had to create our own language. I'm Jay from Push Black, and on today's episode of Black History Year, we're going to talk about how black people talk. There are countless names for it. Some folks call it Ebonics. Some call it African American Vernacular English, or AAVE. No matter how you describe it, talking black is as unique and complex as the people who speak it. And yet, the validity of black speech is often questioned and demonized as inferior to standard English. But we're here to make it clear, that ain't the truth. Today, sociolinguist Dr. Sharice King is helping set the record straight about black language, what it is, what it means culturally, how we have used it, and how we can use it as a people to move beyond surviving to thriving. Dr. King is currently the Neubauer Family Assistant Professor at the University of Chicago, where she also completed the Provost's Postdoctoral Fellowship. And we're so lucky to have her for this important conversation. Now let's get to it. Dr. King, what does Black liberation look like to you? For one, I think if I were to start from the perspective of Black people, it would look like refraining from policing ourselves as much as we have been taught to, I think, in the past, allowing ourselves to realize different dimensions of our identity without being ashamed about that. And I mean that across all kinds of spectrum. So whether that be our sexuality, whether that be our gender identity, or what other kind of ethnic backgrounds that we may come from, even among the Black diaspora, just allowing ourselves to be full and to show up authentically um, in whatever kind of capacity that may look like for us is, I think, the start toward understanding Black liberation. What, in your opinion, is Black English, or uh, I've heard it called Ebonics, African-American vernacular English, uh, African-American language? What terminology do you use, and can you define that for us? Yeah, so honestly, it depends on what the political end is, if I'm being real. I like to say that it can come with a lot of different kind of baggage, uh, depending on the label that you use. Uh, for myself, uh, I like to use something like Black English or African-American English. I think those are more neutral terms than some of the others. There are people who use African-American vernacular English, and that gets some slack for the vernacular in it. People sometimes feel like it deauthenticates the system, right, that it is, the, the fact that it's a real language. Some people refer to it as Ebonics, and they're only talking about the slang aspect of our language. And our language actually extends beyond just, you know, the words we use uh, when we're trying to be cool, right? So for me, I would say I, I prefer Black English or African-American English to refer to the speech of Black people, right, in its many forms. I want to make sure we have all the definitions right. Are we saying it's a language, a dialect, a vernacular, or something else, or all those? Yeah, depending on the kind of language you get, they may say all those. Um, more recently, people have been really trying to push for calling it a language. But we know that the um, that calling something a language is a political <laughs> kind of statement, right? There are 
different uh, countries in which you may have sort of what people may call a dialect, but for people who live there, it may seem like a different language completely when they speak it, right? And not just a dialect. And so it really just depends on the perspective that you're coming from. But I think the clearest way to think about it is as a language variety. We know that it's related to English, right? Uh, but there are some really unique sets of patterns that are particular to the variety that Black people who speak this language, I guess you could say, uh, know pretty well. Can you give some examples? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My, this is my favorite part. So I think the habitual B is one that people know very well. And what that means is if I say a sentence such as, he be going to the mall, right? I'm saying that this person goes to the mall regularly and marks the sort of habituality of the event. That would be one example. Another example would be like, if I say that's her mom house, I didn't put a possessive S on mom, right? And in African-American English, you don't have to use the possessive marker because you know that the possessor is what comes before that, um, what we would call that embedded noun. Those all have to do with like syntax kinds of examples, but you also have things that we do with sounds that are really interesting. And so you can do things like consonant cluster reduction. That's a big word that basically means when you have a word and two consonants occur in a cluster at the end of that word, that last consonant can be dropped, um, especially when you have a word that begins with the following vowel. So I'll give you an example of that. If I say that I'm at my friend's house, I didn't say that with the D. And that's sort of just a natural uh, environment where people tend to reduce. So in that context, I just said friend house, the H is a consonant. But you can also, if I said something with the vowel following it, like friend apple, uh, you can also in African American English reduce when you have a following vowel. So these are just some examples across the sound system and the syntax that differ for African-Americans. That latter one is my favorite one, or the one I use most often myself. Do you have a favorite one? I guess copula deletion. So this is an example where you don't always have to use the inflected form of B in certain contexts. And I'll, of course, give an example. So I can say, um, she going to the mall rather than she is going to the mall. This is an example in African-American English where, again, that inflected B is, that inflected B verb does not have to necessarily um, occur in this context. But there are rules on it, which is the cool thing. This is what makes it a grammar <laughs> itself. And that is when you have sort of the copula deletion, you can't just delete in any context. So I could never say, I nice where the am is deleted. I would never delete that in a first person kind of context because for me in the variety of black English I speak, right? Like that's ungrammatical. And so it's just really about thinking through, okay, what are the patterns and what are um, the acceptable sort of constraints on what can occur and when? So Toni Morrison talked about how in some ways black English is superior to standard English. Um, do you agree with this? And what can Black English do that standard English cannot? 
So the linguist in me would say, well, technically no language is more superior <laughs> than the other, right? right? But I do think there are some really amazing things about um, African-American English that, you know, translate across multiple kinds of platforms. And that has to do with how we make meaning. Um, we have a very interesting way of using tense as well as a way of signifying, right? Things that affect how you're going to interpret what you read or what you hear from a person that add just these layers of beautiful meanings that unless you're in the know, you just can't get. And so sometimes, you know, it's like being a part of a club that you were just born into and you heard, you know, your family members talking this way. And, you know, you see it in the context of Black Twitter, you see it on Instagram, on Facebook, you know, all over social media. I think this is why Black people are so funny <laughs> in these spaces is because we bring a certain level of nuance or of added meaning that you don't always get in mainstream American English. So how did African-American English form? Yeah, so there are two different camps um, that you know, have different explanations for how it formed. On one end, you have sort of the Creolist, which uh, they would say, well, African-American English sort of formed as a Creole. And so when you have these enslaved people coming from different, you know, territories of West Africa speaking different languages, they came up with their own sort of variety. And over time, people said that that Creole may have maybe started off looking something like what you see in uh, Jamaica or Haitian, right? Like you've heard of these other kinds of Black Creoles elsewhere, um, but over time had been decreolized. That's one theory. Another is that some of the patterns are akin to what people may have said you've seen among like the indentured servants that were sharing space with enslaved peoples at the time. And so others have said, actually, these are patterns of other kinds of varieties of English from an older time. Nowadays, people kind of settle between a mixture of both, like some patterns may have come from indentured servants, others might have been the result of Creole. So that's the simplified version of how it has formed. But there's also something to be said that even from this historical context, you did have uh, the Great Migration, right, which carried Black people to these uh, more northern urban regions. Uh, from these more southern rural towns. And from there, there are some sort of social processes people think that happened that also kind of solidified some of these patterns as Black people were living among each other, right, in these cities. So that's also another, I think, important part of the journey of understanding what the variety is currently and, yeah, why it looks the way it does. Are you able to add any color to the slavery aspect and the great migration aspect? I want to wrap my head around how the language could have been formed or solidified during these times. Uh, what goes into that? I assume it's some kind of isolation aspect and some other things to a certain extent. So can you speak on that? For one, when we talk about a Creole, right, um, it's usually like uh, the the meeting of different languages coming together and you finding a shared, uh, people often say a pigeon develops first. And then when that pigeon is sort of taught across generations, right, to children and things like that, it becomes a creole. Um, and so what people are doing are finding a shared way of communicating in these um, situations where they would not 
normally be, right, in communication. So that's one aspect of it. And then just thinking more about um, the Great Migration. Yeah, you have people who are isolated. Black folks were concentrated, right, in these urban inner city kinds of regions. And so you have it such that the language patterns that they're bringing with them from their own um, hometowns, depending on where they're migrating from, I think are just being reinforced, or maybe they're even acquiring other kinds of patterns that were in these other regions, right, that they didn't have. So that's a little more context around how it happens. But pretty much when you talk about a variety or you talk about a dialect, isolation, right, is a key point to thinking about how people are able to have the space to create their own way of speaking. If we know that language is often more than just words and sentences, what are some of the defining cultural elements of Black English? Just going back to the higher level sort of discourse level, I mean, there are cultural things that we do, for example, that include like playing the dozens, right? Or um, what some might even call throwing shade, right? Those are things that, of course, aren't just limited to the Black community. um, But those are things that I think are culturally important, right, for us by way of different traditions, oral traditions that we carry on. Um, But then I think there is a way in which even within the U.S. context, we have accents that represent where we're from, what it means to be a Black American in L.A. versus Chicago versus New York City versus Atlanta. Right. Those are different experiences that in part, you know, our voice can do some of the work of telling. Right. Uh, We can make out uh, sometimes, depending on, you know, how much experience we have with certain accents, what part of a person is from their age, you know, and other kinds of things about their identity, just in the kind of accents that they have. And so I think when we talk about, you know, culture, it shines through in multiple aspects of the language, depending on what level you want to discuss it on. Can you talk about signifying? How do we use it to survive and thrive? Yeah. So signifying, it's it's sort of like playing on this double meaning. And so I think when we talk about it in relation to how we use it to uh, survive, I think it's clear more so when we think about the uh, folktales, right? And the way that people talk about things like the signifying monkey or Br'er Rabbit and how they were able to outsmart or um, outwit some sort of opponent, right? through the use of uh, clever clever sayings or uh, trickery, right? Deception in their speech. And so it needn't necessarily be deception at uh, the level that I, we're talking about among people, but it's this idea that we're able to communicate on another level that isn't always transparent to the mainstream audience. And that ability to sort of include other kinds of... Um, sayings or other kinds of uh, social meanings is, yeah, our means of being able to talk with each other on another level. And it's, yeah, like I said, it's one of my favorite parts about the culture. <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite parts because it just adds a certain kind of texture to the speech, you know, to be able to have it such that it is useful on just many levels of meaning. 
Dave Chappelle said, every black American is bilingual. All of them. We speak street vernacular and job interview. So <laughs> what is code switching and how do we use it today? Code switching, which you can also more subtly think of as style shifting, is just changing your way of speaking when you're in a particular context or with a certain audience, right? And so we style shift all the time, honestly, being on the street versus being at work, right? Or style shifting when you're talking to your parents, right? Versus when mm-hmm. you're talking to your homegirls, right? Mm-hmm. So it's something that we do, but in these more extreme cases, what happens is that, um, yeah, in general, in a professional setting, we may to, and it depends on who you are, because some people feel like, you know what, I don't have to code switch ever, right? Um, it depends on who you are. Some people feel like, Um, you're just going to hear me speak this way, regardless of the circumstance that I am in. Um, And other people kind of feel like, well, actually, no, because I'm not comfortable with you. I don't use the voice that I would use sort of um, in the streets or with my friends, right? And so the decision to code switch, which oftentimes goes unconscious, but um, the decision to code switch, it, it relies on a lot of different reasons, depending on the person, right? There's no standard, um, I always do this or I always have to obey, you know, these particular conversational norms when I'm in this setting. It really depends on uh, who the person is and who they're trying to project themselves to be in, uh, in certain kinds of company of people, right? Are you aware of other groups that are non-white groups in America that also have something that's like a, you know, couldn't be considered a whole nother language? And how do they navigate that? Is it different than how we have to navigate? Is it uh, is it the same? I don't know if we have the same kind of discourse around other, you know, racialized groups having to code switch. I mm-hmm. think it's something that is really specific to the Black experience. And I think it's a good question. Why? Like, mm-hmm. why is that something that we emphasize among African-Americans? And I think it's because culturally, we're seen as a kind of a pole. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about race and politics in the United States, some people have talked about thinking about it as a continuum, the black-white binary. Um, And so when I say pole, I'm referring to blackness as being a pole on that uh, binary, right? On that continuum uh, between black and white, other racial groups sort of get saddled in between those us poles, right? And on top of that, I think other kinds of racialized groups, yes, there may be some code switching, but they may also be speaking other languages, right? Um, mm. And not just necessarily other language varieties. So there's also that piece to it as well. I would say that, again, everyone engages in some degree of style shifting in their speech, but the extent to which that style shifting gets called out seems to be more readily uh, discussed in the context of Black people's voices. You know, we hear folks, I know I hear folks and have always heard folks, usually folks that are older than me, you know, say that we have to speak proper English. We have to speak the right way. We need to get rid of the Ebonics and all that type of stuff from our own community. So describe the different ends of the, the argument around that and what your idea is of you know, is this something that we should value and embrace or do we need to throw it out? There are a lot of different takes that people have about what the utility or the function of Black English English is, right? 
And um, there are some people on it, one extreme that might argue, well, actually, I think that uh, I'll talk about it in education because I think this is where this conversation is especially relevant. There are people in education who think that, you know, Black kids who come to school should sort of assimilate and acquire the academic language and that instruction should not be in uh, African-American English or that that has no place in school, right? That's sort of one end of it. And the other side is that some people have said, you know, well, really doesn't matter um, what variety you speak in because people are capable of learning whatever skills or knowledge set, right, that they're supposed to acquire at school without necessarily having to speak um, mainst- a mainstream American English. Um, and that the variety you speak does not determine your intelligence and sort of, right, the perspective on that end. And so I think that uh, it's difficult water to tread because on, on one hand, you don't want to not prepare students for what the world looks like right now, which is that it's a world that requires you in different contexts like college to know um, sort of this more um, mainstream or academic kind of English, right? Uh, But on the other hand, you want to prepare them for a better world, right? Where they are not going to be judged on that, where their intelligence is not going to be evaluated based on um, how much they speak what I like to call an unmarked English. Because different kinds of... um, linguist and linguistic anthropologists have shown like, guess what? The standard English, you know, um, is really a myth. (laughs) No Mm. one really speaks, you know, perfect English. And I can tell you as a person who uh, studies people's speech sounds, people reduce their speech all over the place. People um, don't conjugate (laughs) verbs correctly or do all these things that are associated with, you know, Uh, written uh, English all the time, right? And yet certain kinds of performances that don't match that get called out while others don't. Mm -hmm. And so when I say unmarked, I'm referring to the ones that don't get called out. And so, um, yeah, we need to step back and ask ourselves, okay, well, if no one is really speaking sort of this really standardized kind of English, then what is the goal? What are we having people sort of um, aim toward? But there are other contexts that say, what if we give people the same sound file and all we did was change the face that is presented with the sound file, Hmm. right? So if I give you a white face versus a Chinese face, how will you report hearing the, the sound file? It's Again, it's the same voice, but all you do is just change the face that the participant sees. And people tended to report more often uh, miscomprehension when they saw a Chinese face versus the white face on the same kind of file. And so extrapolating away from that, what this says to me is it's not even always about necessarily what comes out of my mouth more than sometimes how you judge the fact that it's a Black body, <laughs> right, mm. that's speaking. And that was in the ca- case of, again, a Chinese voice, but we can think about this across just period, different kinds of racialized bodies. Um, their speech is evaluated maybe differently 
depending on what our ideologies are about the group of people rather than only just the way they speak. Yeah. You know, like George W. Bush saying, you know, I'm fixing to go do this or that. But if Obama was like, yeah, I'm finna go do this or that, it would be a totally different response, right? Yes. And so a lot of times it's, again, about what we associate with the speakers and not necessarily what's even coming out of their mouth. Mm -hmm. And knowing the difference sometimes is hard, right? Um, uh, Between like, okay, is this person judging me because they can't understand me? Uh, Did I say something odd or are there, you know, mental facilities wrapped up and trying to hear me differently? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You don't know. Um, And that's difficult sometimes. In your opinion, what happens if we completely eliminate use or encourage the uh, elimination of use of black English? Like as far as our community goes, what happens then? I think we lose a certain kind of richness, but I also think that people will will probably not do so successfully. (laughs) You know, um, language is one of those things where regardless of what kinds of uh, rules people want to put on it, people are still able to control and manipulate it, right? It's speech. They still have power to create and design sort of different ways of speaking, uh, that are going to be useful for the communities they live in. And so collectively policing that is, I, I think it will be a failed attempt, to be quite honest, because of the way that we engage with one another in different capacities, first and foremost. But I also think even if we try to move toward doing so, I, again, I just think we lose some of um the culture, because like for me, for example, I'm from uh, Western New York, Rochester, New York, and a lot of my folks are from the South. And so, you know, their voices carry with them literally when they came up (laughs) during the great migration, that history and that past. Mm. And I would never, ever want to, you know, wash that away because that, that, yeah, that's history. It's meaningful. And it's a sense of self-definition right? This act that we get to choose what's meaningful and important to us outside of these standards that society has deemed (laughs) more appropriate. Talk about why is that important for a people to embrace their language? Like, And I say that because obviously we've been stripped of the languages that we brought over. We've created something new. It's a connector, right? It allows you to remain for me, when I go home and I code switch and I'm talking to my grandma and I'm talking to my cousins, like it, it's what helps me to remain connected to them, right? I have moved to California, I moved to Chicago. I've been, you know, a lot of different places just in the world. And for me, coming back home and being able to speak to the people who I've grown up with, uh, the way that I spoke with them growing up makes me feel at home. It's a way that I can continue to um, establish that foundation with them and remain connected, right? And that's a priority for me, is being able to connect with people I love, um, as well as like people say what they want about Black language, but our stuff is being lifted left and right for different means uh, when it comes to (laughs) capitalism, right? Like, obviously, there's some value in it. And we don't need capitalism to tell us that. Let me just start there. But there's some value in it. And the fact that 
you know, people are always, you know, hanging on to what's going to be the next new word or the next new saying that comes from this community. And the fact that it's profitable to me says we have a lot of cultural capital among us that Mm. people want to tap into. Mm -hmm. And we should be careful to preserve that and not devalue it, you know? Um, And we're not always, again, compensated for the the labor we do of being linguistically innovative, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But again, it's valuable for us to, again, remain connected to one another and to, yeah, um, use it as a means to navigate different realms of the society, but especially social media. It's like all these corporations don't possibly have black folks running their social media accounts, but they're picking and choosing what to use and what to run with for profit without that sort of face behind it or that personal connection. And like you said, it, it can be kind of scary, the uh, disembodiment, right? Because it's just like the logo you have. You don't have the actual like person <laughs> mm-hmm. attached to the language. And so, yeah, what then does it become? But, you know, in some cases people have called it, you know, yeah, performance, right? Would you consider that uh, cultural appropriation to an extent? Yeah, I think so. Um, but my definition of cultural appropriation, first and foremost, has that it uh, exploitation. <laughs> um, so for me, I'm like, cultural appropriation for me is important to talk about when people are being exploited and not being compensated mm. for their labor. You know, somebody walking up the street who's not Black wants to sing a rap song, I don't care, right? Like that kind of context, mm-hmm. I think for me is not as bothersome as say, you know, I forgot the young woman's name who, you know, used the whole on fleek <laughs> and yeah. that sort of went viral and she never saw anything from any corporation who was using it to talk about everything from, I don't know, bed sheets to burgers. <laughs> That reminds me. So I did see a video of you speaking. It was in relation to the Trayvon Martin incident about one of the witnesses using Black English and being misunderstood. Do you recall this? Can can you speak sort of to that specifically and how that does impact us in the criminal punishment system and and elsewhere that we may not even realize? Yeah. So that work was done with my co-author, John Rickford. And we were looking at Rachel Gentile's speech and how her speech exemplified patterns that are associated with the variety um, African-American English or African-American vernacular English. But one of the things, a couple of things we found, okay, yes, she exhibits high rates of these patterns. Um, But we also wanted to ask the question about how is it that people who speak this way um, are understood? as well as um, are they deemed less credible? And, you know, there were conversations uh, from certain jurors that uh, to show that they weren't always understanding the way that she spoke in the courtroom and would need, would request, you know, repetition of what she was saying because they couldn't understand, as well as uh, there are people who just found her not credible, Mm. right? And in part, like, we need to be asking this about you know, every Black person (laughs) who is in the courtroom, whether or not they are going to be heard, right, in multiple senses of that word. Mm -hmm. Um, 
are people understanding what they're saying because of maybe some of the uh, language or linguistic differences between the varieties? And are people going to believe them or discount the testimony because they think people who speak this way don't tell the truth? And that says something about a kind of racism and bias that people have for speech that they have racialized as sounding Black. I believe there's, you know, certain pushes from immigrant groups who come from different cultures and has used different languages to get, you know, different versions of like government documents and paperwork and forms like done in their specific language. Do you think that is something worth pursuing for Black English? Why or why not? Yeah, so that's a really difficult one. I mean, this is similar to the question of, well, in the courtroom, should we have translators for mm. Black speakers, right? And, uh, you know, our language is one that doesn't necessarily have its own orthography. By orthography, it doesn't have its own writing system in the same kind of way that, you know, Spanish has a writing system, mm. right? We write things how we think it sounds, right, on social media, um, but it, it, it doesn't have an official agreed upon. Certain words, for example, don't have an official agreed upon spelling, especially if, you know, maybe it's slang or something like that. And so sometimes I think it would be hard to represent Black English in written form, right? Mm. Because we don't, you know, necessarily have an established writing system for it. But also the reason why it's difficult to say is because you have it such that, you know, some Black people might feel offended, mm. right, by that kind of move because they might feel like, well, I speak English. Yeah. You should be able to understand me. And that's partly because, you know, we haven't really educated the entire country on different varieties of English. So we assume that there is only one. And so, you know, saying to someone, well, you speak a complicated English that we don't understand. So we need, you know, a different set of paperwork or a translator here. Someone might find that offensive. If you could sum up just why conversations like this are important, um, why really understanding the nuances around Black language and embracing Black language is important. Um, just the, give us the why. Uh, why do you do this work? <laughs> Yeah, I think for one, it's a it's a source of cultivating pride um, in a space where oftentimes Black people are, are made to be ashamed for our contributions to the society and the kind of um, culture we've created around the conditions, right, that we've had to suffer through in this country. And so allowing, again, a sense of empowerment is one of the reasons why I study this is because I want Black people to feel empowered about what we've created and what we've done and about our traditions. That's one side of it. The other side is that you should learn about this because there are actual socio-political consequences to speaking as a Black person in this country, potentially, right? And this is some of the work that we didn't talk about, but we know that... Um, there are people who don't get jobs or people who uh, don't get certain housing benefits, right? So like people have done studies to show if you call and you have the voice of a Black person asking to rent out a property, you may not be shown that property because the person will deem this person is Black and we do not want them, right? Uh, we do not want to make this a neighborhood that is maybe welcome to Black people or whatever kind of 
decisions um, that people make. But the point is that people can make decisions on our behalf based on our voices alone. And so also knowing about the consequences of what it means to uh, be racialized as a speaker is important. So Mm -hmm. I think both those sides are why I study. Um, Is there anything else, big picture wise, if, you know, people should take away from this conversation as it relates to your work and how we can promote and embrace um, and accept? And this is really among our own community. That's who this is for. How can we think about this? Yeah, Black people have many ways of speaking. And um, some of the most stigmatized forms often uh, get over-policed. And I would say to maybe step back and think about how you've been taught to do that and whether or not that's necessary um, in order for, you know, our community to flourish. (laughs) And so, yeah, I would say this is a point of pride, not a point of embarrassment. And I'm happy to see that more people, though, now are talking about Black language explicitly as something that is valid. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit Black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, A people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Albany Jones, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Brianna Lambach, Courtney Morgan, Aquia Tate, Tasha Taylor, Leslie Taylor Grover, and Darren Wallace. Producing and editing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Ivana Tucker. Julian Walker is the executive producer of the podcast. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out. <laughs> <laughs>